Good morning. It is good to be here in, in Iowa. It's a, it's a little cold for us, but uh, we're trying to get used to it. We're coming from Florida, so we're trying to adjust quickly to the weather here. So I know you feel sorry for us, the fact that we had to come here and, and endure this time, but uh, it's been fun, actually. So, um, yeah, we do work with David and Danielle. We're excited to be here in their church. We're excited to have them as a part of our team. I, I only know good things about them. We've only seen wonderful things in the time we've been. So I'm actually really, really looking forward to hearing feedback from you guys on things because you probably know them really well as well. So we like to hear those, the past things and the old things. I think David grew up here in this church. And uh, I remember growing up, the church that I grew up in, I would not want people that I knew to know where I actually grew up. So <laughs> it's good to be here. Uh, I uh, just kind of give you a little bit of background about my wife and I. We are uh, with Global Serve International. We've been working with them for a number of years. We started uh, probably in, in the whole picture of missions uh, in the early 1990s. I actually um, had been a chemical engineer working for Dow Chemical in Michigan, um, working with them for a number of years, and then I went into the pastorate. Uh, well, actually, I was in the process of kind of deciding what, what did God want from me and, and where would he want me to work and serve, and so we were praying and asking the Lord, like, where, where, where would I go and what could I do? And, um, I went off to seminary and I met my wife, Julianne. Um, we became a pastors, or worked in a church in Florida for a few years. And while we were there, uh, we discovered where God would have us serve. So we began praying about that and seeking the Lord and, and how he could use us really primarily amongst unreached people groups. That was our vision, was to see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed in places in the world that had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And I, I just want to just let you know that it's exciting to see where God has gone and it's exciting to see the changes in people groups and places around the world where the gospel has gone. It's actually a night and day difference. Um, but it's also the reality that there are literally places all around the world where the gospel of Jesus Christ have, has never been, has never been uh, where people have not gone yet. Uh, David and Danielle are actually looking at that right now. So you can be praying them as they go back. There's a lot of huge decisions in their focus in the next few months for them as they prepare to go back to where they're going to go to. Um, the, the, the region where they're working, it's extremely uh, needy and unreached. It's one of those weird situations in life where they actually have the opportunity right now to almost pick a place, any place, in some of these people groups, and it's going to be unreached, unengaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pray with us and pray with them as they go back to kind of make those decisions. There's some, some really hard decisions to do. Um, I actually grew up in a family that, was, that knew missions. Uh, my, my grandfather was one of the founders of a, of a mission called New Tribes Mission. Uh, it, was a, it was a fairly large mission. Uh, now they're called Ethnos 360, but it was at the time uh, they were founding it. It was New Tribes Mission. And my grandfather and his brother and five other men uh, went to uh, Bolivia, South America. And five of them, my grandfather and my great uncle, were both killed as missionaries trying to reach the Iowa Indians. My grandmother and great aunt stayed on and with many other people began to work and reach the IOTA for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And actually, I, was un I, was, I wasn't able to be there. I was at a conference uh, in the region where David and Daniel serve. We were doing a conference at the time, but this is the 75th anniversary of their death. And the IOTA Indian tribe, now full of churches and pastors, uh, came to commemorate those that gave their lives so that they could have the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's a picture, uh, the reality of the fact that what we serve and who we serve and why we serve actually makes a difference. Uh, one day, 
one day my grandfather will be gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ with Aode Indians, uh, many of them possibly who even had killed him or tried to. Um, and then one day they'll be gathered around the throne with Jesus Christ, praising God. We see that in Revelation. So the great picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we went to, uh, we were praying, my wife and I were praying about where we would work. Um, we actually, I'm from Michigan, she's from New Jersey. We chose Florida to live in. There's a little bit of a line there. Uh, and there wasn't, there was, there was choices, but we chose wisely. And we prayed and, uh, and God brought us to Sarasota, Florida. And uh, it was a great place to be, but while we were there, um, he began to do a work in my heart and in my wife's heart to serve in a place in the world where the, the gospel had never been proclaimed. And uh, believe it or not, we chose Siberia, Russia. And so uh, that was a big move for us. Uh, Siberia was, I thought it would be warmer. No, I, that's not true. We knew where we were heading. We knew what we were doing. We actually prayed and asked the Lord to go there. One of the unique things was, was I was going to go with the, the mission organization that my grandfather had founded. But they weren't going to Siberia, so we tried to find an organization that was going to Siberia, and there weren't very many at the time. The Soviet Union was just, at the time when we were looking, was still existing, just beginning to fall, and nobody was working there yet. So we figured we were in the right territory, unreached, unengaged. Uh, didn't know if there were people that lived there. Um, didn't know much about it. I had an encyclopedia. Some of you guys probably don't know what they are, but they're books. They were paper, and <laughs> we looked it up. There was a picture of a Buryat. The Buryat people who we worked with, there was a picture of a Buryat in there. It was the only picture I had we could go with. And my wife and I moved to Russia and uh, began learning language and culture. Our very first day was unique. We wound up with a, a legitimate organization, um, but they sent us out by ourselves. And so we actually landed in the country, really no place to go or to stay. A guy I had led to the Lord when I was younger, or actually working in the church in Florida, was Russian. He was Russian Jew. He, had, he had, um, was a refugee, came to America. And his father was still living in Moscow. He was in the mafia. But they, we were, it had no connection at the time when I first heard about it. But he said, we were going to go to Russia. We had nobody to meet with. No one was going to organize us there. And so he said, hey, I got a, I got a guy for you to meet. Go live with my father. Uh, and so we thought that was a great idea again. Um, so we, we went to Russia. We landed at the airport. He didn't speak any Russian. We didn't, well, he spoke lots of Russian. We didn't speak Russian. He, uh, he didn't speak any English. So we actually met him at the airport, we got in the car, didn't say very much, and we began to drive to the place where we were going to stay, or at least I thought we were going to stay, and it was raining, pouring rain, snow, on top of this car where I tied eight duffel bags on top, of our, on top of this car. We drove it to this house, and as men do to explain to their wives what's happening when they have no clue, I began to explain to my wife, oh, we're going to the place where we're going to live, it'll be great, we'll put our clothes in there and we'll dry them out. So we got to the place where we were going to stay. My wife ran up. My wife, by the way, was uh, four months pregnant. So she went up first to the, to the place where we were going to stay. I, this guy didn't help me at all, so I carried all these bags upstairs. When I got upstairs to the room, she said, something's happening. They're yelling. So again, I explained to my wife what's happening. I said, well, they're probably, he's probably saying they have to leave. And so then we put all the bags in the house. He takes, he takes my wife and I and takes us back in the car. And again, this is now three or four in the morning. We've flown across the world we're driving through the airport, or through the city, and I'm explaining to my wife, we're probably going to get food, and then we're going to go back to our house. We drove for three and a half hours, and he drops us off at another apartment a long ways away, and puts us in this apartment, and then leaves. And now we're like, uh, she's like, now what happened? And I'm like, well, here's, here's what's going on. So 
So we woke up the next morning, and, and she was, my wife was pregnant, so hungry, and uh, she demanded food, and so I, <laughs> I, I, went, I went downstairs to find food. I didn't have any money, didn't speak the language. I thought I was in Moscow. We prayed for Moscow. We prayed for Russia. We were in Moscow. And I went outside in the streets, and everything was like crazy. It was like this picture. The night before, it had been snowy, rainy. Today, it was snow. Snow on the ground, beautiful, white. And I'm like, this is kind of how I pictured Russia to be. And I was like walking on the street and thinking, you know, we prayed that God would get us here. It was like one of those miracle things where we, we're here. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but today we're fine. And then suddenly I, I looked around and thought, man, this is amazing. Every building looks the same. And then I got terrified. Every building looks the same. I have no idea where I live. So <laughs> being part Native American, I actually went back and looked at my bottom of my shoes, followed my footprints all the way back to the house, I ran and hugged my wife, and she said, where's the food? But we, <laughs> the thing is, oftentimes we have beginnings, right? One of the things I'll say this is that although we were by ourselves, we didn't have a team, we didn't have an organization in the country, um, we had each other, but more importantly, we had the Lord. And I think the thing that I realized more, than, more at that time than any other time in my life, and I think any time you do something where you're risking, you actually allow yourself the opportunity to see the Lord Jesus Christ actually engage and work in our life. And I want to, if you can, turn your Bibles to John chapter 15. The picture we see here is actually this picture taking place. You're going through the, really, a sense, it's a, it's a picture from John 13 through 17, where it's the Last Supper event evening. So it's actually, the book of John, all the way through up to this point, 13, has been kind of the three-year history of Jesus' ministry. Now from 13 to 17, it's about a 12-hour series of events taking place. So it's a very busy time period taking place. And what's actually happening is Jesus is sort of downloading an awful lot of material for the disciples. And all of this information is beginning to rock their world. They're actually realizing things are going to be different. One of the things that Jesus talks heavily about here is what does it take or what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I actually really love him because I think sometimes he just really can just be, he's so, so truthful, so accurate, and so convicting, and so hard at times. And yet when you read this passage, it's a very loving passage, but it's a pretty straight passage too. We'll get into it in a few seconds. The story is this, it's, it's dealing with the vineyard, and God in the vineyard. And one of the examples that we're going to talk a little bit about from God's point of view is uh, just as the purpose of a grapevine is to produce good fruit, so the main purpose of our lives is also to produce good fruit. That's kind of the story. God himself, he's the owner of this vineyard. And that's kind of the theme that's going to come through this thing. And he has the responsibilities. And what, what he does, if you're a good farmer, if, you're a good, if you have a nice vineyard, if you're growing things, one of the things you want to see is produce, production. You want to see results taking place. And that's actually why Jesus uses this example. Jesus also uses this example. It's a little bit of an imagery taking place, too, because he starts off in this passage by actually describing himself as the true vine. He says he's the true vine. And actually, when you think about that, the true vine, it's a contrast in so many ways to what I'm going to say as being basically like a counterfeit vine or a fictitious vine. Now, why is that actually interesting or important? I think it's important because what we see throughout the Old Testament, the idea of the imagery we see of the vine isn't new. It's been used all throughout the Old Testament. It's primarily used of the nation of Israel. And it's not, it's not very kind 
the way they describe it. I'll give you an example here. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, Yet I planted a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? So what he's saying is this. He goes, I actually I, I did everything perfectly. That seed was perfectly good. Why is it that you've walked away? Why is it you've become nothing? So in the beginning here, in, in John chapter 15, uh, let's read verses 1 through 4. Jesus says this, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now he's using a metaphor here, and he's talking quite a bit about a vine and a gardener. He's actually saying something to the disciples. And what's unique for this situation and why it's so important for these disciples is because the metaphor, the illustration he's using, actually, he's actually relating it specifically to the disciples. You see, a lot of other times when Jesus would talk in these types of patterns with imagery or even parables, he often was talking about somebody else. Today, this time, he's talking directly to the disciples about them. And it actually, he actually wants them to really understand this. And so they pay especially close attention to this. You see, the conversation, though, as he begins, as you walk through this picture, it's actually started a little bit earlier. Jesus has already done the Last Supper. They've already done the foot wash. All these things are already happening, and they're on their way, basically, to the garden. And so the conversation starts, actually, in 1430. It says this, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and will do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And then these words are important for us to understand because he says this, come now, let us leave. So actually what it seems like is happening here is this, is that after they're in the room, sitting in the room talking, going through this time, now they've gotten up and they're starting to walk. And Jesus now is walking along with his disciples. And as he's walking along with them, he's actually trying to point out certain things that they're going to remember for the rest of their lives. And he uses this imagery of the, the vine, uses this imagery of the vineyard, uses this imagery of the, the gardener, and he begins to describe different components of that. So let's talk about the three people, the three main characters in this story. There's the gardener who's in the story, and that's God, God the Father. Uh, the second one is Jesus, the vine. And the third one is believers, or disciples, and they're the branches. Now, one of the things that is key to this is for plants to grow well, uh, it depends significantly on the gardener and how he actually works that thing. He'll actually see the fruitfulness take place. If they're pruned well, if the plants are pruned well, uh, they'll grow well. But the, th- the plants that don't prune well, the plants that don't, don't work well, he's going to discard and throw away. You see, the goal of the grapevine is actually to produce grapes. It's not actually a hard concept in botany, but it does actually make a huge point to us as believers. Because he's actually saying something very, very clear and direct to us. The purpose of a grapevine is to produce fruit. The purpose of a believer in Jesus Christ is to produce fruit. He's very simply stating it very clear to us. You see, Jesus actually is the one that says that the Father prunes branches that don't bear fruit. He alone is responsible for the health of the vine. We started working in Southeast Asia. Our organization, we work specifically in closed countries with unreached people groups. I think you probably have heard a little bit of that. Our focus is exactly in our niche in the whole area of missions is going places where normal missionaries can't go. And so we actually 
spend much of our time, much of our effort working, trying to find out how can you get in there to actually accomplish the purpose. And the purpose for us is actually not just to see people evangelize, because that's actually even not what Jesus is describing here. It's to see disciples made, to see followers of Jesus Christ, to see a church established in that people group that will plant churches outside of that people group, that will continue to grow further and further along, so that David and Danielle don't need to be there for the rest of their lives because the church that they planted will be doing that. That's the goal. And so to do that, it's going to take time, discipleship, entry. It's also going to take a translation to take place, Bible translation, all in the area of places where you can't be there as a missionary. So how do you do it? So actually, we find unique, creative ways to do it. One of the areas we're working in the Southeast Asia, a family that we had, two families, were working, looking at a place where there was nobody. As a matter of fact, they called it an impossible area, unreached, unengaged place of the world. You can't get up there. It's impossible. That's sort of what we look for as places where there's needs, but nobody's going there, and likely nobody will go there. These guys could go the rest of their lives and never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, ever, in their own language. So we went up to that area, began looking around. How would you get in there? About 20 years ago, this country was the largest producer of opium. And so the government burned all the opium out of the areas. And that was great because it stopped the drug problem, but it didn't actually help the farmers. The farmers were dying because they couldn't survive. Um, they, they, they didn't give them a crop to grow that would help them survive. They just burned the opium, made it illegal, but nothing else came in the area. So what did they do? Some humanitarian group somewhere along the line 10 years ago planted coffee in the area, a lot of coffee, but they didn't give them a source to actually outlet that coffee. So when we went up to this area, we went through the, we went through the areas, we saw nothing growing, we saw people starving, literally starving. It's one of the poorest places I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's, one of the, it's one of the saddest places too because it's also where a lot of the children are sold and, and taking some of these areas where you're looking at these areas, it was just, it's just devastating. But we found was in the jungles, we went through the jungle areas, we, we saw old coffee trees that had grown but nobody was doing anything with them. So we determined that would be a way for us to get in there. And so today we have a, a pretty thriving way of actually living in the community, engaging with the people. We are in the process of learning the language, process actually of working now towards a translation in that people group. But at the very beginning, it was a slow beginning. The problem was is they, they, the coffee trees had been planted there, but had gone in disrepair for so many years. No one had taken care of them. And so the, 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 even though the trees were there, they were capable of producing because of the way they had been treated, because of the dis disarray of the area, and because of the violence of that climate, a very, very challenging climate, they had died off, so many of them. But with just some simple care, it was amazing how they were restored. So today we have a pretty thriving business going there, working there. Our purpose is to see a church established. Our purpose is to see a translation take place. Our purpose is to see these guys thrive. In the process, about 750 families are actually making a, a living right now because of that. They're surviving in that community. And so we're actually seeing two things happening. We're seeing life taking place at one level. We're also seeing the opportunity to communicate. And what's really neat is we're loved in that community, heavily loved in that community, because we're providing outlets for them. But during the process, as I looked at the plants, we saw what happened, how much has to be cut away. I actually had to take a class and, and go through some things and read th things up on it, because you actually see how much of a tree has to be cut away for it to be, survive. We did the same thing in an area in Indonesia, in Coco. I don't know if you've ever worked in cocoa, but it's almost down to nothing that's left before that thing can start producing again all over again, how much you have to cut away. What was amazing to me was how similar that is to this. That's actually what the Father does to us. It begins to take things off. We need to be pruned. We need to be cleaned in these areas so that we can produce good fruit, but it takes time. So how do I bear good fruit, and what is good fruit that we bear? One of the things I think is, he, is interesting here is, is the term that he says this, abide in him. 
The branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless we abide in him. It's, it's interesting because that's a common thought, right? The idea of abiding in him. Well, the word abide actually is used ten times in this passage. Ten times. Five times it's abide in me. One time abides in the vine. One time abiding in us, abiding in you. The other one is abide in my love and abide in his love. But nine of the ten times, it's about us abiding in Jesus, us abiding in the Father. Only one time does he talk about him being with us. So much of our lives, we have a focus that's the other way around. And yet our, our connection is to, the, is to the vine. How do we actually get that connection? You see, the, the, the word abide means this, to remain, to stay, to be connected to. It's an interesting picture because I think what we do is we actually sometimes see that our responsibility and God's responsibility as something that's how different. In John, 1 John 2, 6, it says this, the one, the believer, who says he abides in him, the Father, Jesus, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You see, spiritual fruitness is impossible to achieve without Jesus Christ. The second thing I want to talk about here is bearing fruit is contingent on abiding in Christ. In verse 5, he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the key thing here is our need to be tied, tied heavily to the vine. You see, one of the only ways we're going to grow, unless we're, we'll be disconnected if we're not connected to that vine. When I was working in a church in Sarasota, Florida, I just, we just came, there was a brand new church. It had a pretty small youth group, I was a youth pastor, and there was a small church existing there, and they asked us to do a ministry for college and high school to be a big ministry, sort of like taking place. Well, I'd never done that before, and so we began doing this ministry, and we sort of did video before video was a thing to do, where you could do it on your computer. This is back in the day, we had to take it to a shop and do video. And we were doing a video program, we had a band, we had all these other things going on, and that thing grew. It was one of the most dynamic ministries uh, in Sarasota for the time. Matter of fact, it was actually one of those things that they actually were, were, were looking at it saying, man, this thing is really growing. What was doing during, with me and my wife was, was killing us. We were, it felt like I hated that evening. Even though it was a good, successful, big thing going on, and then as it was growing and continuing on, uh, we began praying about it. We thought, you know what, let's, just, let's take a break and let's, let's hand it over to this other guy that's our co-partner, and then we'll step back for a little bit. And that week it died. It just died. And we prayed about it, and, we felt, and I suddenly realized this is a ministry, and I'm, this is even sad for me to admit, but it's a ministry that I grew just out of sheer will. But I really believe there was no power of the Lord in that ministry. People got saved. Uh, things were happening. But I, didn't, I don't feel like it was anything. We stopped that and just started doing a Bible study, teaching the Word of God, just simply teaching. None of the things around it, just teaching. And that thing grew. Never as big as the other ministry, because that other ministry was huge. But it was a picture for me of the difference in actually doing ministry or doing things in our own power, even good things. There's nothing wrong with what we did. It was good things. But I actually don't believe it was actually connected to the power of the Spirit because it was actually done partly because we were asked to do it, not because we felt the Lord leading us to do that. And I look back at it now and say, you know what, it was a good ministry, but it wasn't what God had for us. And we changed our, our roles. At times, 
ministry or things we do might be good, but ultimately if they're empty or they're devoid of anything and they don't produce joy, I don't think it's of the Lord. I think we need to check ourselves on those things. You see, Jesus actually says this. Jesus measures us abiding in the, uh, abiding with spiritual fruit that we produce. And he actually says this, much fruit. Now, then that goes back to the question, well, wouldn't you say that that ministry was huge? That it would be spiritual fruit? Isn't it? Don't we determine things off of the size of the thing? Wow, that's a big ministry. That must be really doing well. Actually, I actually know how God sees things. It's very different. Very different than that. See, he actually goes back to this picture and says, the goal is, is how is my father glorified in that? Well, he's glorified when we bear much fruit, but also when we prove to be his disciples. You see, to be a disciple, we must bear fruit. To bear fruit, we must abide in Christ. To abide in Christ, we must keep his commandments. So what kind of fruit do we bear? And he keeps on saying this to us. Well, what is the fruit that we're trying to grow? He says this right here. If you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be given to you. See, so he suddenly goes into this area where we talk about this idea of praying for things. See, this fruit actually that he's talking about is actually the consequence of prayer in Jesus' name. And it's connected to the, to the glory of the Father. So fruit and prayer are related. You see, they're connected in that way. Therefore, what we're talking about here is that as we pray in our heart and spend time with Jesus, it's actually we begin to get the mind of Christ in our prayers. And the things we begin to pray for aren't the things that we always think we pray for. It's kind of backwards. We have a tendency as believers to sort of make a decision and then sprinkle Jesus on it with our prayer. You know, God bless this thing. You know, yeah, here you go. And this right there. And then hopefully somehow that kind of a ritual is done. We have a tendency to make decisions. I know that for myself, it's like you always see these things, hear about these things. You know, when we make plans to travel, you don't ever really think about, let's say, we should pray, is this what God wants us to go? When the plane's coming down, you know, you're thinking, maybe we should pray right now. Maybe it's a good time to pray. When, you don't have, when, you, when you've lost control, we pray. But when you haven't lost control, boy, sometimes we just don't pray. Sometimes we don't focus on the Lord. When things seem to be going right, we, send, we tend to lose focus on our connection. And what do we do? We're no longer abiding. Therefore, this way, I want to, I want to kind of decide, describe this way. Therefore, this suggests here that the fruit in this picture is everything that is a product of effective prayer in Jesus' name. What I'm saying is this. The fruit that we're talking about here is actually fruit that's been through prayer. It's obedience to Jesus' commands. It's experience of Jesus in our own lives. It's actually having peace. It's also having an ability to see love for one another. We'll see that later. It's also our ability to follow the commands of Jesus and actually care about the world and be witnesses to the world. You see, the fruit is not about success. The fruit is aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ. That's the challenge. So do our prayers, and we pray. We pray for sometimes, you know, I don't want to be sick, or my leg hurts, or something like that. We pray for things like that, and that's sometimes, that's fine to pray for. We're to pray for those things, but we're to pray in the Spirit along where God wants us to be praying. What does it do for the ministry? How does this allow us to work towards the things that God's called us to do? The fruit for us, then, is this. It's becoming more Christ-like in what we do. The fruit of our life, the fruit of our ministry, it's not about how many things we've accomplished. It's about seeing things being dependent on the vine. When we were in Siberia, one of the things we did is we planted a church amongst the Buryat people. The Buryat people are the largest people group in Siberia. Um, there's about two million of them. And so there was a fairly significant number of them. Two million people 
all of them primarily Tibetan Buddhists. I don't know if you've ever worked with Tibetan Buddhists or have much experience with Tibetan Buddhists, um, but they're uniquely different in some of how, how they view Buddhism from different, there's three types of main types of Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhists were strongly into the occult and a variety of things. Not to mention that the Soviet Union had been there for a number of years and atheism had hit. So we walked into a place that was kind of a unique time period. As we were working in these areas, planting this church, we began doing Bible studies, groups getting together in our homes. In the very beginning, the early days, it was fairly challenging. Just to say the name Jesus was hard because people reacted so strongly to it. It was a closed area. So we were in this Bible study, and there was a young woman by the name of Ayuna. She was a part of our Bible study. She came regularly to this group. I used to always pray, maybe not in the spirit, but I prayed that she wouldn't show up because she was really, really uh, not a friendly person in the group. She always threw the group off and would be very critical. Uh, I used to say she was mean. She wasn't, she's a, now a dear friend, but she, uh, anyways, so she was not going to listen to this. But as, as we go along, but we would sit there in these Bible studies. Well, one day I was teaching through Noah's Ark, just a Noah's Ark. And, and every week after week we'd be teaching and she would just like take notes. I'm like, why do you take notes? You don't even care. She goes, I think this is hilarious that you believe this. And uh, she thought it was just a myth. And her mom had been in the KGB and I said, what do you do with those notes? He goes, I bring it back to my mom and we, we, we talk about it and we laugh that you actually believe this stuff. And I'm like, oh, at least I'm humorous. So we, we would go along and, and, and one day I was teaching through Noah in the Ark and as I was teaching through Noah in the Ark, she stopped and she said, I'm not in the Ark, am I? I've never actually, I've taught this before even in the States. I've never heard an American ever pick on that right away and said, I'm not in the Ark, am I? I said, I don't know, are you in the Ark? She said, no. And week after week, she kept coming. She no longer laughed. She sat there taking notes. And she became very interested in the gospel. And, and then at one time, she actually said, I, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And we were excited about that. At the same time, she was going to China on a scholarship to China as a, as a, as a teacher there. And uh, she was going to leave our group there. And she went in to get a medical exam, and she found out she had tuberculosis. One out of four people have tuberculosis in our republic. So it's a pretty high epidemic. And at the time, it was pretty violent. A large number of them, about, about 15% to 20% of them would die. So it's a pretty significant death rate with, in, that, in that area. So she went off to this hospital. And I don't know if you've ever been, or ever been to a place where you can smell a disease, uh, if, but I think I can smell tuberculosis. I don't know what it's like, but this is one of the most disgusting places I've ever been to, this hospital where she was in. She's a young, beautiful girl going to a hospital with only men. One other lady was there. She died. Uh, and they left her in the bed for four days. They didn't move her out of the bed. It was basically just a prison for these, for these people. And she'd have to go outside to the bathroom, and outside in the back would be these bathrooms. Uh, with no doors, no walls, just go out to the bathroom. And the men would go out there. All of them had been in prison for rape, murder, and they would taunt her. And she came, she came back. I went there after four days. I went back to this hospital, and I said, how you doing? And she's like, she's terrified, like, like hysterical. Pray that God gets me out of here. And I said, oh, what's going on? So she, I walked around the place. These guys were just nasty. And, like, to me, even nasty. And uh, I prayed. I went back. I never prayed so hard in my life. I wrote to my churches in America. Uh, people said, pray that God will do a miracle here. This is the will of God. Pray that God would do this miracle there. And we went back three days later. And uh, she got her results back. She had the worst kind of tuberculosis. Uh, she was contagious. She had to be in there now for the whole year, basically. And she just, when I saw her, she was just weeping. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry about the news. She goes, that's not why I'm crying. I said, why are you crying? She goes, I've been reading the gospel. 
because they just suddenly realized that Jesus had everything. And he came here to live among us. And he died for us so that we would have life. Just who am I to think I'm better than Jesus? And she stayed. Not that she had to stay, but she stayed and her attitude changed. You see what she learned? Well, she learned how to abide. She learned how to actually trust in God. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered like we hope. But sometimes God actually does something far greater than that. She became a missionary. As God would have it, she became a missionary, and she's now connected to our organization, still works with us in our organization. She has two beautiful twins, and God has used her in great ways. But she still had to endure that year and that place every day. And I, I told her, this is something, I, I, I do this often, I'll probably tell this to David, I may have even said this to him, in their worst times, I always do this in people's worst times, so the, you'll remember this time, it'll be the greatest time of your life. And I said that to her, she said, I will not. <laughs> she shares her testimony all the time and says, this is the greatest time of my life. It's when God met me. You see, sometimes we want to pray our way out of hard situations. But if we abide, if we stay with Jesus Christ, he allows us to get through these things. Discipleship that Jesus talks about, it's not a vote. It's not a decision that we'll say, we'll take it and leave it as it goes. It's a lifestyle. It's a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. As a result of this, in verses 9 through 11, we see this happening. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, Jesus tells us once again to abide if you keep my commandments. He's actually telling us something here that's really important. We are to obey his commands because he will provide us joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You know, one of the things that I've, I've been bothered with, and I'm, I'm an American, but I'm bothered with in our society is that we have placed a high, such a high level of happiness in our lives that we have the pursuit of happiness as, a, as a, one of our major virtues as a nation, the pursuit of happiness. But that's actually a myth. It doesn't exist. Why doesn't it exist? Well, our society, if you read any news, I don't know what it's like in Iowa, but in Florida, opiates are one of the largest problems in the society. So you're telling me that happiness is there? And joy is there? Or happiness is there? No. What, what, is, it, what is happiness? It's this pursuit of something that's a myth because it's how I want to feel today. You see, what Jesus is talking to us about here is the kind of joy that only someone like Ayuna in a tuberculosis hospital where people are threatening to rape her can find joy in Jesus Christ. The beauty of that picture is this. Ayuna, I used to go and do a Bible study at that place just to be with her once a week by ourselves, just me and her. I'd sit out in the snow in Siberia. We'd sit out there and we'd, t- we'd take a Bible out and we'd go out there because these guys, would, whenever I went into the hospital, they would literally spit on me when I go in there. And say, you want to be here, join us. So we would do that thing. So we, we ended up sitting outside and doing this so it wouldn't bother us. And week after week, they would stand around us in a circle and taunt us and make fun of us. Over the course of time, they saw Ayuna's attitude not only changing but becoming more resolved. She saw them as a mission field. She saw them, that God has me here to reach these guys. Who else would come into a hospital and reach these guys? And she began to share Christ with these guys. And pretty soon, they were coming and they were protecting our time. They were actually not allowing people to mess with us. She became like a hero at that place. Not because she did anything with the revolution of calling the police or or calling the doctors, but because she was changing. And she was having an influence on people. Her joy was overwhelming the people in this hospital. See, joy is something different than happiness, because happiness is fleeting. But the joy, this inner contentment, despite our circumstances, is what God actually wants to do. 
So I want to challenge even the church here today. Man, if you're going through some hard times, it's actually abiding. It's don't, and one of the things we say is, you know, just tough it out. Think good things. Have a happy day or whatever. That's not it. It's abiding in Christ. Spending time in the Word. Staying connected to Jesus Christ. Making your life as a disciple in Jesus Christ to allow these things to happen. I had a chance to do a quote today uh, from, uh, from John Piper or Oswald Chambers. My wife said Oswald Chambers, so I'll use Oswald Chambers one. The full flood, she always says Oswald Chambers, though, so that's actually not even a fair one. The full flood of my life is not in bodily health, not in external happenings, not in seeing God's work succeed, but in the perfect understanding of God and in the communion with him that Jesus himself had. The first thing that will hinder this joy is an irritation of thinking out circumstances. The cares of this world, said Jesus, will choke God's word. He wants us to get to the place where all we care about will be his witnesses and the proclamation of his name, Jesus. See, joy is actually found in obeying him, and in that we bear much fruit. Regardless of the circumstances we're in, you can have joy. Allowing us, Hebrews says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, that's the challenge, isn't it? We get so bogged down with things that we grow weary, we lose heart, we lose focus, we're not abiding, suddenly everything's going wrong, our life seems to be a mess, we, we get angry, we start blaming others, we're thinking of not our, it's, it's not because of me, because we always paint ourselves as the hero of the story, so it's everybody else did it to me. And suddenly we get back to this point, and reality is this, we are to consider ourselves no better than Jesus. We're to consider ourselves, what did Jesus do for us? It says here that he endured the cross, the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So what's fruit bearing about? Why is, well, apparently it matters to God. So we could read this whole passage and just say this. John chapter 15 seems to be the culmination of the entire message that he's trying to give to the disciples. The prayer that comes later is an incredible prayer in 17, but this actually is the whole point of it. We are, as believers, to bear fruit. Well, we actually see that happening, right? We actually know how it happens. It happens because of our relationship with the Father. It happens because of our relationship with the Son, Jesus Christ. It also happens with our relationship with, with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus, at that point in his life, when he's getting ready to ascend to the Father, reminds us that that power is never going to come from our ability to do it. It's going to be from our ability, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to connect to Jesus Christ. And it's when we connect to Jesus Christ, problems seem to diminish. I find that in the mission field all the time. Here's one of the quotes that people say all the time. Missionaries end up leaving the field because of problems with teammates. It's not true. It's because they get disconnected from Jesus Christ. And they start looking at each other. That's the problem. God asks us to bear fruit. You see, the fruit of the ministry is incredible. When, when Peter and Paul was writing in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he actually was writing to the disciples, or to, to us, the church. And he sounds like he's at the end of the rope. He's kind of depressed. Everybody's left him. I don't think he ever saw the fruit of his ministry. I don't think he realized that we, t- see, we sit here today as the fruit of his ministry. We're here, privileged to be here, because of what the Apostle Paul did in his life. He passed on to the Gentiles a message that we have today. But as he sat there in that prison cell by himself, he didn't see all of this. He didn't get a chance to see what he had done. He didn't get a chance to see the fruit of his ministry. 
It wasn't until he went to heaven that God actually revealed that to him. Because he says at the very end, but he actually has joy because he says, all these problems, everybody's deserted me, but God stood by me. God stood by me. He had the right perspective. I was getting ready to come back to the States after being traveling overseas, and um, one of our, not this lady, but another one of our believers had married an American. Her name was Maya. She was a believer from Siberia, one of the first Bereat believers in the world. And she became a pastor's wife, she was a missionary in Siberia for a number of years, uh, planting a church in Siberia, and now they've gone to the States now, and she's a pastor's wife in Shadron, Nebraska, which is probably not far from here. I had never heard of Shadron, Nebraska, believe it or not. I, had, uh, um, I was asked to go speak at, this, at their church about a year ago, didn't know where Shadron was, and they just said, oh, just go to Denver and drive north, and you'll, you can't miss it. <laughs> that was interesting direction. So we... <laughs> Uh, he, they were right. It, it, was, it was true. There was one road, like one road north and out of Denver, and that's it. And like the weird thing was, is nobody comes the other way. I was driving on the road thinking, like, what's going on in Shadron? Because like nobody's coming back. So we're just driving, driving. <laughs> so we're driving to this church, and I got in there that night. The next morning, we're having breakfast. And we hadn't seen, her name is Maya, and the, her husband's name is Mike. We hadn't seen them in a, in a long time. And this, we were having breakfast at their house, and this girl sat right next to me. So she sat there, and she was, I had never met anybody from Shadron, Nebraska. And so she leaned into me. She said, I am the fruit of your ministry. And I said, I didn't know if that was a Shadron greeting. I, was like, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I just went, I didn't, I didn't have a comeback for that one. So I thought of anything. So I just kind of slid my plate over, you know, and kept eating down here. And she just slid closer and she said, I don't know if you heard me, but I said, I'm the fruit of your ministry. And I said, no, I did hear you. I, I don't understand. And she goes, I wanted you to ask. So... She goes, let me tell you. She goes, I came to Shadron as a non-believer. I had never, my, our marriage was a mess. My life was a mess. And she goes, I, 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 our family was a mess. And I met Maya. And Maya led me to the Lord. And Maya began to disciple me. And Maya began to talk to me. And Maya began to spend time with me. And she says, I said to Maya, you're not even an American. How do you know how to do this? She goes, missionaries came to Siberia and taught me how to do this. So I'm going to do, do with you what they do with me. And she discipled them. And she goes, and then she asked me to start leading a, a women's discipleship group, and I started doing that. She goes, I can't do that. She goes, I'll teach you. And then she goes, now I'm leading a women's ministry of 25 women. She goes, I'm teaching it. And she said, the same, she, goes, she told me the same thing. They taught me how to teach, so I'm teaching you how to teach. She goes, so I'm the fruit of your ministry. Well, I don't know about the Apostle Paul. He never got that privilege. And I don't know if I'll ever get that again. But planting a church in Siberia, Russia, amongst the Buryat people that had never heard the gospel, I never thought... I never thought that I would hear someone from Shadron, Nebraska, telling me that they came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the seed that was planted in Siberia. You see, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. The fruit of the ministry goes like this. We actually have been only called to be a part of what God's doing, producing spiritual fruit in our own lives, doing the, doing the work of the ministry. We can't produce the success of the ministry. That doesn't even matter. Am I faithful with what God's calling me to do? Am I faithful with what God is asking me to do? And when I am, God actually is the one that causes the increase. And so I can sit here today and say this, that people in Shadron, Nebraska, now know Jesus Christ because of a seed that was planted in Siberia. The fruit of the ministry goes far farther than we ever imagined. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for the privilege we have to be your children. I thank you for allowing us to abide in you for the fruit and the spiritual gifts that you've given us in our ministry to be given to us because of you. Father, we ask you to just bless this time. Thank you for this church. Thank you for David and Danielle. Father, I pray for them as they prepare to go back. 
I pray that you would prepare a good work for them like you say you've done in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Father, you're preparing a work for them. I pray that they would walk in it. We pray that they would stay connected to the vine. They would stay focused on you, that their issues, the problems, and the struggles that our teams have, Father, on the field will be united in you because of you, Father. We'll just be together. I pray these things in Jesus' name.